Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 12 of Superman and Batman. My name is Michael Bradley, and I'm your host on this podcast, where each and every episode, we look at a Superman and Batman team-up from throughout the years. This episode, we are boldly going where no episode of the show has gone before, the 1960s. And not only that, but the story being covered this episode comes from the first issue of World's Finest Comics, published following the debut of Batman on ABC, starring Adam West as the Dark Knight himself and Burt Ward as holy sidekick Robin the Boy Wonder. In fact, there's an interesting bit of coincidence with that, which I will get to in just a minute. I kind of doubt it was intentional, but you never know. So this episode, we are looking at World's Finest Comics number 156. The issue, which has a March 1966 cover date, was released on January 25th of that year, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And that's just shy of two weeks after the debut of the Adam West series on January 12th. It also was one day before the airing of the show's fifth episode, The Joker is Wild, which featured the first appearance of the Joker, as portrayed by the Latin lover himself, Cesar Romero. The issue sports a 12 cent cover price for 32 pages. In our cover, besides being the first issue of the title to feature the, what I suppose are now infamous, Go-Go Checks branding across the top, is illustrated by Kurt Swan and George Klein, who were the regular cover artist and mostly regular interior art team, and had been since the book came under the editorial fiefdom of Mort Weisinger just a couple years prior. The cover itself cuts right to the chase, as it shows two figures dressed in the familiar costumes of Superman and Batman rending open the bars of a jail cell in order to free the clown prince of crime, the Joker. But these costume figures aren't the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Oh, no, 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 dear listener. These aren't our favorite heroes, but they're twisted duplicates. Bizarro and, making his first appearance anywhere, Bizarro Batman. As our cover copy tells, it's gags galore when the Joker joins the FBI, the Federation of Bizarro Idiots. And I really dig this cover. It's well-drawn, and really, it's entertaining just on its own. If I have one complaint about it, it's that there is way too much dialogue. Um, Both Bizarro Batman and the Joker have large speech balloons explaining what's going on that kind of take away from the cover itself. Uh, we see Bizarro, you know, bending open the bars of the cell. And Bizarro Batman says, Stop, Bizarro Superman. No use your strength to free Joker. It's easier for me to open cell with corkscrew from my useless belt. And the Joker says, Thanks, Bizarro Superman. Me and Bizarro Joker. See, me got white face too. While thinking, I'll con these dolts into helping me make fools of the real Superman and Batman. You know... Oh, and just as an aside, whenever I read the Joker's dialogue in this issue, I hear it in the voice of Larry Storch from the 1968 Batman series. I'm not going to do the voice of Larry Storch from the 1968 Batman series. I will spare you that much, but that's who I hear. But anyway, it's not bad copy. It's just not really necessary for the cover. 
Although I do suppose it would help the younger readers understand a little better what's going on. Because, as we all know, kids are stupid and can't discern things for themselves. Or something. But either way, for good or for ill, excess cover copy was kind of a hallmark of the Weisinger era of books. And, uh, and, and even with the copy, it, it's, it's a great cover. It's an amusingly intriguing idea that sure makes me want to read the story inside, which is exactly what a cover should do. So, turning inside, we've got an 18-page story, which was written by Edmund Hamilton, who, like Swan and Klein, was part of the regular creative team from the beginning of Weisinger's run as editor. The Grand Comics Database also credits E. Nelson Bridwell as having written pages 1 and 11 through 14 of the story, with a footnote saying that this was confirmed by Bridwell himself. And I don't know the story behind that, but if I ever find out, I will be sure to share it on a future episode. Uh, the art and editing were, of course, handled by the aforementioned Swan, Klein, and Weisinger, respectively. So we open with a splash title page that shows Bizarro ripping off a bank vault door, which allows the Joker to steal the money inside. Superman and Batman arrive on the scene as Bizarro fends them off with a water gun. Because, as we know, Batman doesn't carry guns, which means Bizarro Batman must. Look out, Earth! Bizarro is back! That kooky, imperfect double of Superman, who, like the original, is faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive. And speaking of locomotives, wait till you learn the wacky reason the idiot of steel creates the Bizarro Batman, and the daffy duo run amuck on our world in... The Federation of Bizarro Idiots. As our story begins, Superman and Batman prepare to leave on a mission to build an interplanetary Fort Knox on another world in order to keep the gold supply of UN countries safe from, quote, advances in criminal science. And I question both the logistics and the wisdom of storing gold on another, on another planet. Uh, not to mention the legalities and safety should, you know, some race of aliens steal it, probably to melt it down for fuel or something stupid. But this is, a, this is really a minor point of the story and just a device to get Superman and Batman out of town. So we'll move on. Robin assures our heroes that he and Jimmy Olsen will keep an eye on things in Gotham City, and no one will even know that the heroes are gone. Because if it's anyone... You want watching over a crime-ridden hellhole full of crooked thugs and corrupt police and psychotic supervillains? It's Robin the Boy Wonder and Jimmy f***ing Olsen. But little do any of them know that someone does know Superman and Batman are going on their mission. A person on that wacky cube-shaped world, Bizarro, who has watched the entire opening scene via some kind of creepy closed-circuit TV series that really needs explaining. But we don't get an explanation as Bizarro is hit with a brilliant idea and uses the imperfect duplicator ray bounced off Batman's image on the television to create Bizarro Batman. The Bizarro World's Finest then leap into action, but not before taking a nap because that's what heroes do, flying across space, soon arriving on Earth and informing Robin and Jimmy that they will be filling in for our favorite heroes. 
Us do everything them do, Bizarro Batman tells the sidekicks. Only us do it wrong, which am right way. Robin and Jimmy realize that they have no choice but to play along with the zany duo and try to keep them out of trouble. And soon we catch up with Bizarro Batman and Robin, well, Bizarro Batman and normal Robin, in the Batcave, where Bizarro Batman is just sitting. Because to Bizarro's logic, when crime threatens, the best thing to do is just sit and do nothing. But when a call comes in about a heist at the Gotham Jewelry Company, Bizarro Batman does head out. After nearly causing several wrecks by only following Bizarro traffic laws, which of course means driving on the wrong side of the road and running red lights, Bizarro Batman catches up to the police chase. Swinging from a nearby rooftop, Bizarro Batman is able to bring an end to the chase. But unfortunately, he does so by throwing a handful of cigar ashes from his useless belt into the officer's eyes, causing them to crash and allowing the crooks to escape. Robin asks why he would do such a thing, and Bizarro Batman reminds the boy Wonder of that great motto that the law must always be unenforced. Robin knows he has to keep an eye on the wacky troublemaker, or he could end up blowing the real Batman's secret identity. Bizarro Batman then leads Robin to an empty downtown building. Because the Batcave is too secret and hard to find, Bizarro Batman has refashioned the building as the Bat Tower, complete with directional arrows leading to it and a sign out front proclaiming it as the headquarters of Batman and Robin. In Metropolis, Jimmy Olsen is facing a similar problem, as Bizarro has constructed a building on an empty lot to replace what he calls Superman's silly Fortress of Solitude, the Fortress of Crowds. He then invites people from all of Metropolis and says because Jimmy is his worst friend, the cub reporter will get the first tour. Bizarro then shows him the secret weapons room, where he leaves dangerous weapons out in the open so that everyone can find them. And I'm thinking that maybe that's where Superman got the idea in episode 2. But Bizarro also shows Jimmy a laboratory where he performs unsuccessful experiments and probably other things that we don't see. But with his secret safe in plain sight, Bizarro leaps out the window and sets about doing super feats around town. While Jimmy tries to stop him, Bizarro beautifies a park by dumping trash into it and clears up a traffic problem in a busy intersection by piling rocks and preventing any traffic into the intersection. Finally tired of Jimmy's meddling, Bizarro decides to get away from it all by switching to his other identity by donning broken glasses, an old fedora, and a tattered suit while chuckling to himself, how clever me was to switch to this identity so nobody noticed me. Me am completely inconspicuous. <laughs> so meanwhile, Superman and Batman finish their work on the interplanetary Fort Knox, which contains a lock so brilliant that Superman says even Brainiac couldn't crack it. The Man of Steel asks Batman how he designed such a high-tech lock, and the Dark Knight simply sips his coffee and says, Because I'm Batman. Soon, as the world's finest arrive back on Earth, they find Bizarro, painting a lighthouse black, turning it into a, quote, nice, safe, dark house. As part two, I was an idiot for the FBI, begins, Superman and Batman get caught up to speed about their Bizarro duplicates' antics. Hoping they can reason with them, Superman and Batman bring the Bizarros to the Trophy Hall, which contains mementos of more than 1,000 cases, 
on which Superman and Batman have worked together. That's right, folks. 1,000 cases, which works out to about one case per week for 20 years. Now, time, as always, is a bit nebulous in comics, especially so in this Silver Age era. And I know they like to give the impression that the adventures we saw in comics were only a part of the hero's costumed exploits, but I think they might have overshot just a little bit on that number. So anyway, at the trophy hall, and and can I just say that I love the idea of a trophy hall? I know it's a silly idea, but I really like that there's a Flash Museum, or a Superman Museum, or a World's Finest Trophy Hall commemorating the exploits of heroes with actual artifacts from their various adventures. If Superman was real, I think we would definitely see something like that in our world, given how we react to celebrities and sports heroes and and that kind of thing. But anyway, Superman and Batman regale Bizarro and Bizarro Batman with stories of various times they've upheld the law and done good, including stopping the Joker, who the Bizarros think is very handsome with his white face, and something called the Treasure Train Case, which we never really find out too much about, all while trying to to convince them that these are the types of things that they need to do. But with the Bizarro twisted logic, they see these stories as bad things that the heroes have done, and decide to undo their good deeds and therefore win the thanks of everyone on Earth. Finally fed up, Superman tries throwing Bizarro into orbit, but Bizarro uses his super speed to return and hurls a giant boulder at our heroes. Superman shields the dynamic duo from the rock, and Bizarro and Bizarro Batman are able to escape. Moments later, the Bizarros arrive at a nearby prison. They break out the Joker in what is basically a multi-panel recreation of the gags from the cover, and take him back to the Bat Tower, where they induct him into the FBI, the Federation of Bizarro Idiots. We then get a gag involving an upside-down room, which is really more visual, as the Joker convinces Bizarro and Bizarro Batman to pull a heist at that night's annual Gotham Charity Ball in order to alleviate the rich women of their horribly ugly diamonds and the jewels that they're forced to wear. Despite Bruce Wayne being in attendance, the wacky trio is able to pull off the heist as Bizarro Batman uses a banana peel from his useless belt once more to prevent Batman from interfering. They then retreat to the Bat Tower, despite the Joker's protests that it's the first place the heroes will look. Naturally, Bizarro says, that am whole idea of having hideout. Well, sure enough, true to form, moments later, Superman busts through the wall, totally awesome George Reeves style, ordering the Bizarros to back off because the Joker is going back to jail. While Batman and Robin hang around outside, you know, because who wants to get in the way of a completely pissed off Kryptonian who can kill you with a sideways glance, Superman charges at the Joker. But the Joker and our heroes are all surprised when the Bizarros say they wouldn't think of stopping Superman. Since the Joker's only done good deeds, they're going to reward him by sending him back to prison. They even go one step further by giving Superman the stolen jewels, saying that he should get rid of them because they can't stand to look at him. So, with the Joker back in jail, Bizarro and Bizarro Batman once again set about doing what they see as good deeds. 
they wrecked some trains, they hindered the police, that kind of thing. Bizarro Batman also removes his mask in public, but thankfully the people are so horrified that they don't realize he looks like a bizarro Bruce Wayne. Finally, having had enough, Superman and Batman once again leave Robin to watch over things, and no word on what happened to Jimmy Olsen, and fly to Bizarro World, where they put a plan into action. Together, the world's finest heroes begin to fix Bizarro World, straightening out crooked roads, repairing buildings, adding jewels to things to, you know, beautify the city. And all of this really upsets the Bizarro World citizens, because as the Bizarro Code states, it am big crime to make anything perfect on Bizarro World. Back on Earth, Robin does his part and tells the Bizarros about Superman's and Batman's actions. They plan to go back and stop the heroes, but not before making a sign revealing Superman and Clark Kent and Batman and Bruce Wayne, and saying they are going to make sure everyone on Earth sees it. Robin tries to stop them, but the Bizarros get away, soon returning to Bizarro World. Bizarro grabs both our heroes and flings them into orbit, because turnabout is fair play, and swears that he and Bizarro Batman will stand guard to make sure they never try such a thing again. Thankfully, the Bizarro staying on Bizarro World is exactly what Superman and Batman wanted, so everything is well and good. Well, almost everything, because there's still the matter of the sign revealing their identities, which Robin has been unable to find. A quick scan of X-ray vision, though, and Superman locates a freshly dug tunnel. Once again, tunneling plays a key role in a Superman story. I told you to listen to Super Future Friends. Anyway, Superman bores down at super speed and discovers the Bizarro-made sign as well as the duplicator ray. Because clearly, to Bizarro logic, if you want everyone to see something, you need to bury it deep within the Earth. Meanwhile, back on Bizarro World, the dim-witted duo is being acclaimed for their heroism with a full parade through town, complete with booze from the populace and spoiled food and bricks thrown at their heads. The end. And once again, this is a story that I just absolutely loved. And it's a lot of that is because I am a huge mark for all things Bizarro, especially the pre-crisis version. And I completely understand why some people don't like this version of Bizarro. While he might not be a hate-him-or-love-him character to the degree of, say, Composite Superman, who is still awesome, Robin Shag, I completely understand why people don't get it. Bizarro stories... You can tell a Bizarro... You can tell a story with Bizarro, or Bizarros, but often when Bizarro is used as the central character, as he was here... They tend to be more along the lines of a series of gags showing the, you know, the wacky ways of the Bizarros. Jerry Siegel did a backup feature in the mid-60s. Um, well, actually, it was in the, the early to mid-60s because it, was, it had been over for several years by the time the story was published. But anyway, these were called Tales from the Bizarro World, and that ran for a little more than a year in Adventure Comics. And while I love those, they do tend to be more of that, you know, series of gags type of stories than an actual story story. And to a degree, that's kind of what we get here. Um, There is a definite story, but there are also a lot of tangents just showing off the Bizarro's wacky logic. 
Hamilton did do a good job, though, of tying some of those back in later to the story, uh, like the Bat Tower. But others, like the the Fortress of Crowds, never really came back into play. I really like the story, but it's not going to be to everyone's tastes. But for an 18-page tale that is full of a lot of gags, there's a surprising amount of meat here. And it keeps moving along at a good pace so that you don't really feel like you're just reading 18 pages of one-liners. Um... I was genuinely genuinely surprised when the Bizarros turned in the Joker for stealing the jewels. I shouldn't have been. I mean, it makes perfect sense in the Bizarro logic, but it was a, a really fun and, and surprising moment because I had forgotten about that from the first time I had read this story uh, a few years ago, whenever that was. Although if they're sending the Joker to jail for doing good things like stealing jewels, shouldn't they go to jail too? I mean, of course they should, but that's part of the fun of Bizarro's, because even their nonsense logic is nonsense. So you never really know what to what to expect. Um, the second part of the story was titled, I Was an Idiot for the FBI. And that's a spoof of I Was a Communist for the FBI, probably best known as a 1951 movie starring Frank Lovejoy although it was actually based off a series of articles in, I think, Saturday Evening Post. Uh, The FBI here, though, is, of course, the Federation of Bizarro Idiots. One of those, you know, kind of one of those one-liner gags I was talking about, even though they do mention it in the story itself. And really, it kind of works. I mean, if Superman and Batman are the world's finest, then Bizarro and Bizarro Batman can be the FBI, the Federation of Bizarro Idiots. Unfortunately for those of us who do like Bizarro, this story has the distinction of being kind of the last hurrah for the idea, um, at least in the Silver Age. Bizarro was really big in the early to mid-60s, so much so the concept even got that backup strip that I mentioned earlier. But by this time, we were inching closer and closer to the Bronze Age, and the... I hate to call it more serious, but the more grounded, I guess, type of storytelling that Marvel was doing was starting to take hold as well, and the popularity of the Bizarros was waning, or at least they were being used less. There's one more kind of significant story where we get the introduction of a Bizarro Flash, but other than that, they don't make much use of Bizarros again until the mid-70s through the mid-80s, where creators started using them a a little more here and there. And I don't think there are any more significant bizarro appearances in World's Finest, unfortunately. So this might be the only time we get to talk about bizarros on the show, which makes me a little sad. Although I do remember... Hmm. Sometime, I think, in the early Bronze Age, there's an issue with a backup story called uh, The Origin of Bizarro World that was basically cobbled together uh, from Silver Age stories. In it, They, they took panels and, and tweaked some of the dialogue and captions and actually told how Bizarro World came to be. Uh, so whenever we get to that, I don't remember what issue that was, but when we get to that issue, I will probably spend a little time talking about that that backup because as I do, as I said, I am a huge mark for all things Bizarro. Um, but but this was just a, a really fun story 
just an you know for me just an enjoyable and fun read from start to finish though again one I completely understand might not be to everyone's taste art wise it was a, a completely solid outing from Kurt Swan but really I mean would you expect anything less it's it's Kurt Swan come on we're running long on time so I'm gonna cut my comments off uh, there for now but really altogether just a solid solid issue a little light on story as I mentioned maybe but still a really really entertaining read and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did so now we're gonna go to our normal promo break and then we'll come back for a look at the other items in the issue and a look at what else was on the stands Holy nightmare. So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing, so I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. The Bronze Age of Comics, an era largely ignored as far as Superman goes, and an era that some consider to still be part of the Silver Age. Sure, a lot of people know about the Kryptonite Nevermore storyline, where all the kryptonite on Earth is turned to iron and Clark Kent goes from a newspaper reporter to a TV reporter. Then there are the Alan Moore stories, for the man who has everything and whatever happens to the man of tomorrow. But in an era that lasted 15 years, surely there's more to the Bronze Age than that, right? Well, my name is Charlie Niemeyer, and every other week, I shine the spotlight on this long-overlooked era of Superman in the Bronze Age. Featuring such stories as the return of Jonathan Kent, two meetings with the Amazing Spider-Man, the Phantom Zone miniseries, the enlarging of Krypton, and more. Plus, J. David Weider also joins in to take a look at Superboy's Bronze Age adventures. So join in the fun at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. If you're interested in reading this story, unfortunately, your only choices are either to pick up an original issue or the black and white reprint in Volume 3 of Showcase Presents World's Finest, because sadly, it has never been reprinted anywhere else. And I don't think it's been covered on any other podcasts. So, until someone starts a Bizarro podcast, maybe the thrilling adventures of Bizarro, let's take a look at what else is in the book. The only other story is a six-page Tommy Tomorrow story by Otto Bender and Jim Mooney titled The Puzzle of the Perilous Planetoid, which is a, actually a reprint from Action Comics number 243 in 1958. The issue also has a couple Henry Boltonoff gag strips, 
including Super Turtle. And in this one, Super Turtle catches up with a crook by the name of Lefty Louie. He starts to fly him back to California, but Lefty says he gets airsick, so Super Turtle solves the problem by tunneling underground. Again, tunneling. Super future friends. I really wish DC would collect these Super Turtle strips. I mean, I'd buy it. I know you would. You would buy it. So, come on, DC. Make it happen. We also get the debut of a new feature in DC Comics, Direct Currents. This time, it's only half a page. Uh, Later, it does expand to a full page. But it talks about a few upcoming books and gives a preview of their contents. Kind of like solicitations, before there were actually solicitations. The only one related to Superman or Batman is Superman number 185, which will be on sale February 3rd. At long last, the invulnerable Man of Steel gets an Achilles heel. One part of Superman's body becomes vulnerable to mortal harm. But which part is it? Read this thrill-a-second saga and see if you can guess the answer. We've also got ads for model kits, home science labs, and pyramid schemes, as well as the letters page, Cape and Cal Comments, which has letters addressing World's Finest Comics number 153 and 154, neither of which have been covered on the show as of this recording. There's also a letter where the writer says he really digs each and every issue of World's Finest Comics, but feels that the book gives Superman more exposure than Batman. And he writes, The Man of Steel is always getting Batman out of a jam. Also, if you have a story in which one of the heroes is evil and the other is good, it's usually Superman who's the nice guy. How about giving the masked manhunter a fair shake? Oh, just you wait, Tim Harley of Youngstown, Ohio. Just you wait. Frassin, frassin, 18 bat titles, 3 movies, 5 cartoons, grumble, grumble, rant, rumble. So now it's time for a look at what else was on the stands by charging up the time machine at Mike's Amazing World of Comics and heading back to January 1966. Lyndon Johnson was in the White House. Simon and Garfunkel were ruling the Billboard chart with The Sound of Silence. Marvel's Fantastic Four were fighting some Mort named Galactus. And DC had 30 books published throughout the month of January. First up is Aquaman number 26, where Bob Haney and Nick Cardi pit Aquaman against Ogre, the Organization for General Revenge and Enslavement. And I'm totally not making that up. We've also got House of Mystery number 157 with the second Dial H for Hero strip, and I really like Dial H. Much like Bizarro, I know a lot of people don't. And I will admit that the Dial H strip is fairly repetitive, but it's fun. I mean, they reprinted the entire run in a showcase volume a few years ago, which has hundreds of pages of great Jim Mooney art. So even if you don't like the writing, you got to admit the art is pretty fantastic. Now, next up is Black Hawk, number 218, where the squad takes on something called Plantamol. Half plant, half animal, and all murder. Which sounds like the greatest schlock sci-fi film ever. Move over, Killdozer. Here comes Plantamol. Green Lantern number 43 features a special guest appearance by The Flash as they take on Major... Major... Eh, if I can speak today. 
as they take on Major Disaster, who we just saw in, I think it was episode two of the show. In fact, it was, because that's the one where Superman left the planet-destroying weapons laying around the house. So there you go. Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 91, sees everyone's favorite copy boy joining a biker gang. And Action Comics, number 334, is an 80-page giant completely devoted to Supergirl. Sea Devils, number 28, brings us more C-movie sci-fi schlock as the cover copy blares, Is it a man? Is it a beast? Awakened from an eons-long sleep, the Manosaur takes to the seas again. And I think the Plantimal and Manosaur totally need to have a Daikaiju-style crossover. Luke Giaconetti, I'm sure, would, would back me up on this. The Riddler, meanwhile, menaces the dynamic duo in Batman number 179, while Doom Patrol number 102 is the final installment of a crossover with the Challengers of the Unknown, which I've never read that, but it sounds pretty cool. Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski introduce the Royal Flesh Gang in Justice League of America number 43, and the Royal Flesh Gang is another silly group that has a special place for me. Among the earliest comics I ever read were the mini-comics that came with the superpowers action figures, and one of those had the Joker teaming up with the Royal Flesh Gang to challenge Batman, I think it was. So, to me, even though I don't think they ever had much interaction in full-size comics, there's a connection there between the Joker and the Royal Flesh Gang, and there always will be. Uh, Plus, as I've said before, I, I like theme groups of villains like the Royal Flesh Gang or the the Army of Crime that we had again back in episode 2 that they're just they're just corny enough to be fun. Uh, but speaking of Gardner Fox written stories, showcase number 61 is the second of a three issue stint featuring the return of the Spectre, bringing that character back after he fell into limbo in the waning days of the golden age. And these stories also have been collected in a Showcase Presents volume. Uh, My sister got me that for Christmas a couple years ago, and it is one of my favorite of the non-Superman Showcase Presents volumes. It's got a lot of great art. The stories are fun. They they start out kind of slow, but they get better as the volumes or as the volume continues. And the art throughout the whole volume is is really good. So, if you're if you're looking for a Showcase Presents volume to pick up. Obviously, I'm going to recommend the Superman-related ones first, but other than that, I would recommend the, the Spectre volume because it's it's a really enjoyable read, and it's thick, too. It's like 600 and some pages, where the average is around 500 for those. So definitely dig out the uh, Showcase Presents Spectre. But getting back into the books, we've got Action Comics, number 335, and Detective Comics, number 349. And last but not least, we've got Adventure Comics number 342, in which Starboy is expelled from the Legion of Superheroes after killing a man in self-defense. And the backup tale from this issue reprints The Boy Who Betrayed Clark Kent from Superboy number 86, which is the first appearance of Superboy's best friend, Pete Ross. But that's it! Once more, I want to thank you very much for listening. Be sure to like the show on Facebook or on Twitter. You can also subscribe via iTunes and maybe even leave an iTunes review while you're there. As always, be sure to write in and let me know what you think of the show. 
I'll be back next time with more World's Finest Goodness. Until then, I am Michael Bradley. I hope you have a great one, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. How bizarre. How bizarre. How bizarre. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers at greatcrypton.com slash Siegel Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. This episode was How Bizarre by OMC, from their 1996 album of the same name. If you like the song, I'd like to suggest you head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner on their site. Buy the song or the album or, well, pretty much anything else Amazon has to offer, and Two True Freaks will get a little commission off every purchase. Not only will you get new music for your library, but it won't cost you anything extra and help support one of the greatest podcast families out there.